Hello, we are live. Fourth episode of Where Peter Is Live. I'm your host, Rachel Amiri. I'm production editor for wherepeteris.com. And I'm joined today by a very special guest, along with our regular contributors, but we have Bishop Richard Umbers from Sydney, Australia. <laughs> Welcome. And we also Thank have you. Mike I should, Lewis. I suppose I should be saying good day or something like that. So. <laughs> good day, mate. That's what we would expect. But and we're also joined by the lovely Melinda Ribnet, contributor at oh. WPI. <laughs> so, uh, Fish Bombers, we talked before. You would like to lead us in a short prayer before we kind of get going here. So, if you could start for us. Sure. Well, so it, look, today is Friday. <laughs> Not for us, <laughs> but for you, it is. <laughs> we'll get a preview of Friday. <laughs> we'll see what's coming up. Yeah. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, open our hearts to your grace, strain us from all human waywardness, and keep us faithful to your commandments. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. Amen. 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 In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And I, I just want to pause right now, because you, you did that right, that last little part, that God uh, forever and one. ever. One God, yeah, and I don't know if 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 all of our uh, eleven viewers have heard about that or know exactly what that is. So I don't. Sorry, just we're keeping it light. But I, I just, I just, we haven't written an article <laughs> about the, about why it's Cardinal Sarah that came through to all the bishops, explaining that the change in the in the liturgy, um, and the the idea behind this is to emphasize the trinitarian nature of of that uh, closing prayer. Mike invited you onto our show today, Bishop, because you have a very um, prominent, I guess, social media presence in Catholic Twitter um, as kind of the lighthearted jokester comic relief um, of yes, Catholic like, Twitter. As, as an auxiliary, as an auxiliary, you have more more uh, freedom of, of of movement, I suppose, uh, between more meetings. flexibility. Yeah, I, 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 the thing is, it's. Um, it, it is basically I'm just having a bit, probably a bit too much fun. Uh, so that, that, well, that, well I'll, I'll get it knocked out of me at some stage. We greatly appreciate that. We need that, that little bit of fun on Catholic Twitter. It helps so much. Yeah. It's a ministry of memes, really, is what uh, we could yeah, call it. I, I actually do other stuff. I really do do other things. I have to work on that. Yeah, so I, I wanted to let's. I want to ask you about your meme technique, because yeah. you know you put up a, at least a meme or two a day, right? And and it doesn't look like you're using professional software. Or, or, or are you using Photoshop, or are you just Microsoft Word and like pulling words in front of it, or what's that? There's a, there's a few there's a few simple photo editors on uh, on iTunes. So I just downloaded them. Okay, uh, PixArt is one. Uh, another photo editor is another. It's very, very simple to use. So basically, for those of you who have been spending too much time looking at conspiracy theories on social media, download these programs and you can make fun memes <laughs> instead make of... <laughs> I just want to say, too, that the good bishop has promised about 15 minutes ago on Twitter that I would be the yeah, subject yeah. of his next meme. <laughs> So I have graciously offered a ton of content from my thousand, aka seven kids, and a bunny. So you let me know what works for you, Bishop, and I got you. All right. Well, well I'll see. I'll see what the latest, the latest meme format is, and then I'll, I'll it'll be a challenge. Yeah. I'll, All I'll right. Work on it. 
So be, before we get into the really serious subjects, um, how is, uh, Melinda just brought up bunnies, how is the bunny problem doing these days what in the Australia? There's a the rabbit-proof fence, and you don't know yeah, anything no, about that. We, we, get, we get various biblical plagues from time to time. Could be rats, could be bunnies, could be locusts, could be... That's just Tarantulas? Do you get... I mean... That's not biblical. Uh, no, but. we have our own poisonous spiders. I think our spiders would eat your spiders. Yeah, I've um, heard that in Australia, the animals are so poisonous. And I have to ask, like, do you guys take that personally from God? Or, like, how? Well, you just, it's, it's all good. In, uh, it, there's, a, there's a TV, there's a movie, in fact, which is one of the worst movies ever made um, called After Earth. And, and I wonder whether it wasn't really about Australia. You know, where everything's out there. Australia. Right? So that's... There are there a lot of good... like that. You go to yeah. Bondi Beach and you look at the signs and it's going, you know, uh, just, just, you know, just for warning, um, there are, and then it goes through the list of things from, you know, sharks to jellyfish to rips to, you know, riptides where you get swept out and, and drown. Uh, just about everything dumping, you know, can be dumped onto the, onto the uh, sand and, and have your neck broken. It's, you know, but other than that, enjoy. Oh, right. <laughs> I'll see, be there next week. See, here's the thing. People who have never been to Australia or, or from your or to your native country, New Zealand, are fascinated. Just I mean, just like blown away by the idea yeah. of Australia. I mean the kangaroos and the and that big rock thing that's well, red. They are, they are like I go for jogs sometimes and I have to jog past kangaroos and they just go stand there looking and but you have to be a bit careful because even the kangaroos could actually break your neck. Uh, if they were to, oh if to kick you, they'd yeah. lean back on their tail and give yeah. you, you know, they'd be worse than a horse. Yeah. Wow. Is that a real thing or are you like pulling our chain? <laughs> no, he could. Oh, no, they're, they could mess you up. Like, now, pull it in a cute you little kangaroo. Yes, if I was pulling your chain, I'd be talking about the drop bears. You know wow. the drop bears? You, you go, no. there's actually a, Google it and you'll go to the website from the government about drop bears. There you go. That, now that's, that's Australia. Okay. You know. Now we have it. We are all <laughs> now. Have you ever encountered now? My one of my favorite YouTube videos of all time is the guy who gets into a, a boxing match with the kangaroo. Yes, and I actually, know. I know very dangerous. You shouldn't do that, though. That's okay. Tourists yeah. should not attempt it was, that. It was to rescue his dog. Yeah, his dog was being be attacked by the love, deadly kangaroo, and he, he gets a couple of. It's, a it's incredible. Yeah, but that's uh, part of the kangaroo's just surprised what's going on i mean they're not the kangaroos are not very bright they're like oversized mice Ew. But, but mice take a punch yeah wow i significantly like kangaroos less after this conversation like it's astounding i never thought of it like that gerard <laughs> wong from youtube can confirm that kangaroos are indeed dangerous so i hope that's um, not from personal experience but yeah if any of you have any any super intelligent uh australia questions like that feel free to yeah like that i had um like for example so you are abstaining from meat right now because it is noon afternoon yeah, that's on right. yep. friday on friday and here yep. it is 8 p.m for me it's 7 p.m for rachel and it's 5 p.m for melinda and well, do you I, do the... I flew to Los Angeles and I arrived before I left. Wow. Oh, crazy. It's very strange. 
So I left at and- like, like 10 o'clock in the morning and I arrived at 8 o'clock in the morning or 6 o'clock in the morning. Excellent. So praying the divine office was was quite a challenge. Like yeah, how, the way back. Yeah. <laughs> how can you manage being a priest, let alone a bishop, in a land of so much wonder and 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 time travel <laughs> and excitement? That's time travel. And fighting through. <laughs> okay, so I want to hear from Bishop Richard. All about kangaroos, but also about talk to um talk to us maybe about like your online ministry because I've been on Twitter, Catholic Twitter for six months, and I have to tell yeah. you like it's been a ride. So since we have you for a little bit, can you talk about um what it's like being an online bishop and some observations that you have? Well, so my background uh, as a priest has always been in chaplaincy especially with uh, university students. So when Twitter first came out, one of my uh, uh, spiritual directees or, you know, was saying to me, hey, you've got to check out Twitter. It is you. And so that, that was over 10 years ago. Now, I've been through various uh, there's times when I've got logged on and I was logged off and then went back on again and went off again. So, uh, But I've been there for, for more than 10 years. And it is uh, – I, when I first started out, I, I was sort of like hunting – atheists and, and pinning them to the ground and, and having fun, um, you know, besting them philosophically. But it, that, that was really, I mean, you know, beating up on an online atheist is, is really like shooting fish in a barrel. So <laughs> then I had to become a little bit more serious and, and tried basically just tweeting the catechism. Uh, and look, and things have gone from there, basically. So it, I, it, I would normally be on some a platform like Twitter. Just recently, I've, I've gone on to Instagram and put the memes there. Um, Facebook, I've kind of neglected a little bit, even though that's where there are the most followers. Uh, most of the parishioners would see what I do on Facebook. I, I've gotten very boring on Facebook, I think, and I just put up articles now. Um, so it's, it's a work in progress. But, but certainly being online, I, I think one of the issues is, is um, you have to, in saying be yourself, you, you do need to be Catholic, uh, even when you're mucking around, and and that does mean, well, look, the same way that you talk to someone in real life, and it is real life. You are talking to someone in real life. Um, you you have the same, I guess, politeness as well, even if you are being a bit edgy. Uh, so I, you know, the the thing of of um, unfortunately, like you you get reply guys, and you've got to ask yourself, you know, okay, there's there's a reason why. Uh, you're not getting the the communication that you might be asking for if the only thing you do is just comment in an abrasive way on the first thing that comes up. What are some other ways that you think um, people need to act like a Catholic online? Like what are some other examples you can think of in terms of like you're following Uh, along on a conversation on Twitter? What are some things you notice? Well, look, I, I... I mean, there are there are ways and ways of engaging intelligently. You can disagree intelligently, no problem. You know, I mean, in one of the real purposes of Twitter, I think, is to discover other ways of thinking. And and I've you know, if you look at the people that I follow, you won't find any pattern because there's all sorts. And, and in general, it's people that I uh, I think it's it's worth having a conversation with, even though we we actually have very very different beliefs. Um, but but. Anyone who who's simply on a rant, 
you know, look, in real life, you avoid that kind of a person. It's the same for Twitter. One of the things that I've noticed, um, maybe that's a little bit different. Uh, I mean, so there are all kinds of bishops on social media. And then I would say the vast majority of bishops don't even barely even know what social media is. Um, there are some that I think maybe tweet out a, a Bible verse or, a, um, you know, a, a, the saint of the day. There are others that maybe tweet out a mini version of their uh, diocesan paper column, you know, so very staid, very, um, very, yeah. very formal. And they might even be having someone do that for them. You know, it's like, oh, we need social media. So very I'll have my assistant tweet out. I mean, that's what Pope Francis does, really. He doesn't he doesn't get into the muck with <laughs> with people. No, um, no, in fact, Pope Francis does not do any of that personally. That's all. Uh, he, he will see. He will see what is said. So he will see the tweet. But the others will will actually do the work uh, for him. That's so interesting. So you think Pope Francis actually sees some of the replies? He does. No, to self. Yeah, yeah, no, no. They, they'll, they'll, <laughs> they'll, they'll put that before him. But, oh. but then they will actually decide what goes in and, and how it's put out there and everything. But no, he does have that input into it. But he's not there. Like, he's not there with the computer sort of, you know, surfing the net or doing anything like that. Yeah. It's like, it's like when the... Um, you know, the CEO gets like the news clippings packet in the morning, probably, and gets to flip through and see what his assistants have yeah. curated for him. I know that where Peter is has at least once been in that pile of things okay. because we, um, for a little while, we had uh, Daniele Palmer uh, writing for us, and his dad uh, was the Reverend Tony Palmer, um, the, the, evangelical minister who um a charismatic minister who who died in a motorcycle accident in 2015 but his son daniele actually wrote for us and i know that something that he wrote he told me got put into the packet so that the pope could see what he was up to so okay um i don't think he <laughs> that's the, that's the amount of awareness that i know now i know pope francis is aware of you or at least you've met him several times oh. correct yes and today true. is or tomorrow for you and two days from now for us is going to be the eighth anniversary of Pope Francis's election as Pope. Um, I was wondering if you could share maybe a little bit about what you know of him as a man. Um, and maybe what you thought when you first, when he first became Pope, had you heard of him or had you, you know? Oh, well, yeah, yeah. So the thing is when he first became Pope, I remember that very well because it was early morning in Australia and, uh, so I was in the university residence and, and everyone was crowded around the, the television, you know, to see what was going to happen. Um, and I was actually uh, making fun of the whole thing of, you know, a Bameless Papa. And uh, sure enough, you know, it was exactly as I'd sort of imitated the, the whole thing. Uh, but I won't do it here because I have to be a bit more respectful. This is, But uh, then as the guy was saying it, he was going, you know, Cardinalos Georgios. And then one of the priests there said, like that he was going yeah you know this is australian I was like, oh, it can't be. and it wasn't um i thought it was cardinal francis george because of well <laughs> george I, and francis I have, met, I have met cardinal george um oh. when i was a seminarian in rome so he was a very cerebral guy uh but uh, this bergoglio I, I had never heard of this cardinal bergoglio and i was going who who, you know, I was out with the phone and Wikipedia and all the rest, and like, who, who's this? 
So it was it was really puzzled. Like I had no idea. Some Argentinian cardinal. I you know I mean I hadn't really followed. Those who knew were, were aware of who he was, but I I had no uh, knowledge. But it was over time, and then you know shortly afterwards, um, so a few years later, I was actually named as a bishop. And uh, so that I went to Rome for bishop school. And we got to meet with the Holy Father, and, and I spoke to him in Spanish because I, I, I lived in Spain. And each time I do that, I think he's always a little bit taken aback, and he'll maybe speak to me a few words in Spanish or in Italian, you know, because he gets confused. I'm supposed to be from Australia, but I'm, I'm speaking to him in Spanish, and it's like, what? <laughs> but I did um, spend a good bit, amount of time. So I've met the Holy Father on a number of occasions, but I did spend a good amount of time at the Ad Limina visit, where all the bishops of a country get together and they meet with the Holy Father, and we. We actually uh, go each day to a different basilica and pray before a tomb of the apostle and, and celebrate mass together and pray the creed together as a sign of unity, uh, and that's that's very moving. But when we had the holy uh, the audience with the Holy Father, there was forty of us, all the bishops of Australia. We were two and a half hours more. We could have been there all day, really. It was wonderful. Um, I was actually pretty pumped uh, at the end of it. But the Holy Father is the kind of person who like he's very grandfatherly in some ways. And you'd really, really love him to have, to have him over at a barbecue. You could invite whoever you wanted. Anybody that you know, whatever their disposition, bring him to the barbecue. And, and he'll have them, he'll really will have them eating out of his hand. Um, the way he's able to combine scripture and, and life. Uh, when he spoke with us, I have to say his knowledge of the Second Vatican Council, of the documents of the Second Vatican Council, was um, was fantastic. He, you know, he 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 spoke in a very catechetical way with us, um, very straight down the line, in, in you know very orthodox theology, um, and 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 really, you know, he he answered all questions. And and you know, some of the look, I've got to keep confidentiality. Some of the bishops asked a few out there questions. I've got to say, he laughed. And then he gave a very, uh, you know, in, in cricket terms, you'd say he played with a very straight bat. Now, are, are you allowed to share, did you have a question and <laughs> what I was it? Chance. I oh, they went by chance. rank? Or they... There was one of the other bishops actually asked a question that I had in, in mind. And um, there's a, the, I have to say, the Melkite bishop who spent time in the United States, Bishop Robert Rabat. Uh, he has a very similar mindset to my own, I think, uh, especially when it comes in terms of technology and, and fronting up to the to the challenges uh, in the 21st century. Um, so he he was able to ask a few very yeah, daring questions, which the Holy Father just said, "Oh, good on you," you know, and and uh, it really gave gave a anyway, yeah, gave a great answer. It's interesting because you say um, that he responded, um, that his responses were orthodox, and you, you use that word to describe him. And there's no surprise from me, and I'm sure Mike and Rachel would agree yeah. that that describes him. And yet, being again, being on Catholic Twitter now for six months, you're exposed to so much that gives this kind of um, contrary view of the Pope. And that's what, in fact, a lot of, as Mike talks about the finding of the website came from is this idea that somehow he's not orthodox. Um, have you um, come across these kinds of theories online and, and what would you say to that? Yeah, well, look, I mean, conspiracy theories have, have been with us from, you know, from the beginning. I'd be interested to know what the ancient, ancient conspiracy theories are, if it goes back to Gilgamesh or something, but certainly uh, in the history of the church, you know, there's, they're, they're never lacking. Uh, 
even someone like Tertullian, you know, sort of got really upset with the Pope because after he condemned those um, ladies who claimed to be prophetesses, you know, the uh, Montanist uh, incident. So, you know, and, and that's why we know a lot about the importance of the Holy Father and the Bishop of Rome, that was kind of the anti-witness that Tertullian was giving and, and really ripping into him. Uh, but, you know, I have had, uh, because of what circulates online and through these different ways and, and generally generated from the United States, uh, is, uh, in, in even in, my, in the pews, you know, there will be parishioners approach me after Mass sometimes and go, you know, who's the Holy Father? I go, Pope Francis, what are you talking about? They go, are you sure? I go, absolutely, he's the Bishop of Rome. You know, what, you know, what, what nonsense are you spouting? Uh, but they'll, they'll, they'll be a bit quizzical. Um, the things on, on vaccines, I mentioned in, in a homily once, uh, I used vaccines as an example. I wasn't actually talking about vaccinations. I was just talking as an example. Of that. And they, they immediately thought, oh, you know, anti-vax and, and, you know, is it okay to take vaccines? And I go, absolutely, it's okay to take vaccines. You know, like, what, are you sure? I go, yes, take, take them. It's common good. But there's... I don't know, like one of the priests said to me, he said, well, no one had problems with measles and mumps and all the rest of it. Why is it suddenly an issue now? And it's only because it gets stirred up online. And that's that's kind of one of the things, like you talk about conspiracy theories going way back, but a lot of the ones that we're seeing now, and, and you know, it's one of the things I bring up on the podcast, so people have watched it before have heard me say this, but it's 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 the same stuff, like Taylor Marshall's book, Infiltration, is the same stuff that was circulating in these tiny publications and these tiny little subcultures in the seventies, you know, the, the, the Masonic infiltration. What, the was KB, book, what was that book about aliens coming to um, set up the major world religions? That was a 1970s book, chariot of the gods or something, or did people take that seriously? <laughs> well, it's a bit like, you know, yeah. every 10 years or so you get, you get one of these things, you know, like the, well, I mean, in my own case, I'm, I'm, I'm a, you know, member of Opus Dei. So I remember when um, the Da Vinci Code came out, you know, I had, I had <laughs> plenty to talk about that. It's when you started uh, getting spray tans, right? When you- <laughs> <laughs> As my no. albino sort of like, <laughs> uh, um, But yeah, no, but I think, I think that the, the globalization of it due to online is, it's like people are hearing these things for the first time it's as if they'd never heard a crazy conspiracy theory before and thought their way through it, you know? And, um, but it, it, it's just, yeah. I mean, there is real need for formation always. And, and I think we need to look very particularly at, at, at formation online. Uh, I, I mean, the Holy See has dedicated ever since the second Vatican council and before, uh, but, you know, intermerifica and then all the, you know, the, the message each year on communications about the importance of, of communications, so-called, you know, what, what was, you know, 30 years ago, new media. Now it's quite established media. Uh, so th- th- there are, there's a, a basis for this. The Bishops' Conference in Australia actually put something out last year about um, being online and, and in our formation in that regard. There's still more to be done, though, at, at a, I guess, at a parish level. Um, and it really is a question of, of simply, like a lot of things, you know, when you do apologetics, that's all very well, but nothing can replace a solid catechetical instruction or a solid theological formation. And it's a bit the same, I think, with, with being online. You know, you just need reminders of, of human virtue. Um, 
and 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 really, what is the the, like the intellectual virtues, uh, especially that of prudence? Yeah, um, one of the things that a, a topic, and I'm trying to, sorry, I'm I'm jumping in, but you've got a few, you've only got a couple of minutes left. Um, sure. Is I've been reading a lot about critical thinking, um, critical thinking skills, yeah. developing these skills, and I think that's that's one of the things that's that's sort of lacking. Like I, and I, I don't want to totally jump ahead, but I. I find that when people are making these arguments, a lot of times they're sharing the article directly from LifeSite News or directly from or repeating the same talking points that I'm hearing everywhere else. It's like they aren't putting their own. It's they're repeating these thoughts that I guess they've just placed their trust in someone. I mean, one of the things that we do at Where Peter is, is if some like if somebody makes a factual claim and as the editor I, I, I want to see that sourced, you know, if it's not totally general knowledge, yep. if it's like, if Pope so-and-so yep. said this, or if this happened in history, and here's the, the click back to the source so you can evaluate it yourself, or if you're critiquing someone, like we've had this kind of recently, I called someone out on it, someone wrote a very selective critique of something that I wrote, skipping the main point of, of what I wrote. And didn't provide a link back to our site. Um, whereas, you know, I, I tried not to keep going back and forth, but I, I linked and, and referenced everything that this other person disagreed with. So it was sort of like they're creating this, this insular world and people don't seem to know how to or don't seem to know well, what, to we're, verify. We're made, we're made for truth. We're yeah. made for truth. And, and um we need to be confident in our ability to search for the truth. I mean, John Paul II, Fides ad Ratio, uh, in a sense, you know, the, this whole fake news business, um, it really is like, I mean, ultimately, I think a lot of it comes down to just sloth. <laughs> in fideism, where you, you know, you think it's the faith, but you can't really be bothered. And really, you can't really be bothered. It's like, I like it, you know, it sounds good. I'll throw it out there. I mean, we don't have a monopoly on, on, on that kind of, slovenly uh, intellectual uh, behavior. But, but really, I, you know, best, best practice, to use uh, all the uh, uh, meetings terms, um, is, is in fact to do, as you suggest, you know, to, okay, well, what's the source material for that? Is, is there a charitable interpretation for that? I mean, that's in philosophy. You always use the principle of charity, not because you're a Christian. <laughs> Those Christians, that we would, it's incumbent upon us to do that, but because you, you're really you're seeking the truth. Uh, what what did the person really mean? You know, is, is there another way of, of seeing this? So I, I would always say in, in a dialogue, in a conversation, you should be able to speak back to that person what you've heard, what you've understood, and have that person agree, yes, that is, in fact, what I said. That is what I believe. Okay, from there, we can um, we can take things forward. If not, it's it, it really is just a slanging match. And I think part of the discernment that we have to have online is when we need to step back from that slinging match <laughs> and realize that the pursuit of truth isn't really happening. And now we need to go back and maybe bring in some levity with some memes again. <laughs> yeah. So, so well, no, I, I, but, but Jim, look, I've had a very positive experience on Twitter in, in encountering all sorts of people. And in fact, I've made friends online, you know, as much as you could be a friend online. Um, yeah. With people who do think very differently, but I I I love dialogue. Um, I I guess it's a thing. It's a natural disposition. I actually enjoy going down to the pub and having a beer with someone who thinks 
very differently. You know, they might be an atheist, they might be uh, of a different religion, um, they can have their issues and everything, but there's nothing you can't sort out over, you know, drinking moderation uh, uh, <laughs> would be it. Um, and, and it's amazing, you know, because really there's, where there's goodwill, you, you, you make a, a lot of ground. And in fact, I, because I, I, I always wear the collar, uh, so people will come up to me and say, hey, could you pray for my grandmother? You know, she passed away, she was a Catholic, you know, do you think that she's praying for me? And I go, yes, of course. And you, you, you know, it's, there's a lot of goodwill. Um, it's just about, as the Holy Father asked of us as bishops, that we get amongst it more or less. And, and, and many times, if we're with other people, we will understand what their concerns are. Yeah, I think that so perfectly kind of encapsulates your ministry online <laughs> and really what we brought it's to hear. It's so now. refreshing to hear. Yeah. Like, this has been so, I thank you so much for coming on. It feels very refreshing to hear you talk about truth in this way, to talk about goodwill in this way, to talk about balance and not being scared of differences and things like that. It's, it's, this is very validating for me too, because, um, you know, personally, I struggle with feeling like, where are people not searching for truth anymore? You know, truth doesn't fear opposition and things like that. And so like, you know, how I should write and stuff. And I've just been very validated this, this last, last half hour and seeing you on. Thank you so much. Yeah. And, I, and you're welcome. I just personally, one, one, one document. Sure. One, one document is uh, that Pope Francis refers to is by Pope Paul VI, Ecclesium Suum. And I think that more or less encapsulates the the way as educated Catholics in a a, a world where people do have education Mm -hmm. um, is the approach that we should take, where where he does talk about what does dialogue mean. Great. Well, we'll have to link that. People may not know much about the faith, but but we need to explain (laughs) it in, in a way that makes sense to someone who is intelligent. Great. So congratulations. Anyway, you look. are the very first bishop to make an appearance on a Where oh, Peter wow. Is affiliated website, podcast, live stream, tote bag. You and name setting it. setting a high bar too. Yeah. One of the one of the successors to the apostles. Oh. A man who has met Pope Francis okay. in Rome. Okay. Stop trying to name drop, Mike. Stop trying. All right. <laughs> Thank you so much, Bishop Richard. We'll let you go. Off to the next thing. So, but God bless you all. And um, Thank you. great. I'll follow along. And yes, I have that that meme challenge. So we'll, we'll, yes. we'll see right. how what I come up with. Well, thanks. All right. God all right. bless. Bye. 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 Thank you. Well, wasn't that nice? That was great. Oh Our God. first live guest, and he was an auxiliary bishop in Sydney, Australia. We just and he looked so balanced and like yes. normal and <laughs> all of you American bishops yeah. who are watching this right now. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't move to Australia, but the thought of keeping all of my kids safe from like poisonous spiders and every and like kangaroos. Spiders. I, well, you know, pressure. too much. Mel pressure. Gibson's dad gave up on on america and they all moved to australia for a while i think we gave up on mel okay (laughs) do you know that story and this is this is random and it's just factoid can i tell this can i tell about mel gibson sure oh my gosh i'm gonna go for it mike his father hutton gibson who died last year i believe and he was like 101 years old 
yeah. was one of the so the man he was a Harvard graduate. He was a five-time Jeopardy champion during the um Art Fleming era, like pre-Alex Trebek. And he was one of the <laughs> first set of acantists in the history of the Catholic Church. Lovely. And well, so, what the history of the United States. And so lovely. he and his like seven kids, they were in like New York Rude. or something, and, and it was too decadent, so they moved to Australia. And that, I mean, that's a whole other, you know, that they've got, it's not just the U.S. I mean, you know, they've got other things too, so... So, so um, now he's Bishop um, uh, Bishop Richard's problem. All right. <laughs> well, no, he's he's dead. Well, he now. came back. Oh, well, then never mind. He did come back. Okay. He died in the U.S. somewhere. But anyway. Okay. So, moving on. What was the rest of the show supposed to be about? So, well, because <laughs> today is it's an energy drink. It's not alcoholic. So. Just oh my gosh, it's an energy out. drink. That's that's no. where Mike's energy is coming from tonight. Great. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> the uh, thermo Rockstar thermo. It tastes awful. It's like the worst. All thing. of those energy taste energy drinks taste. No, this awful. is That's especially awful. Coffee. It's like neon green, and it tastes like I don't know, like watermelon, mango, onion, or something. I don't know. But it's it like has terrible. a super masculine and not at all effeminate can, right? It's like no black effeminacy and here. It is That's super sure. masculine, and you are not drinking it in a man cave. Nothing, no nonsense no. like that. Okay. Imagine um, the pressure of not being able to eat quiche because you can't come across <laughs> as too feminine. Like, what? Like, I had a quiche with mushroom, asparagus, goat cheese. My husband ate it. His voice went a little higher than normal. Sounds but... pretty delicate to me. I don't know. That is dainty. Really no French food. You only get you beef know, if you are true. This is a very American thing too, because masculinity across the the world, right? In other cultures, like we should have asked Bishop Richard about it. How is masculinity in Australia? Because in you other know what cultures, it is is they have the I know there's hat like rugged outfits, like and then the brown shirt with the buttons on it, and the like, yeah. Australia, they have their own cowboys. They're pretty situation. rough and tumble. It's like a land of adventure. <laughs> I think of like, Good I don't fight. know. I think of like my like Italian friends or my like Persian friends. Oh, those guys. Like, oh yeah. Oh, they, they so primp and oh, that's a whole. And... Yeah. No, no, oh, yeah. no. They're pretty. They're pretty rough and tumble in, in Australia and and like Mexico, definitely. Well, Australia is like they came from. They were like forced Convict. there from. Britain, right? So, and we are also like inheritors of British culture. So it's like very different, like Western Puritan culture than the Persian yeah. affectionate Westerners kind of Italian. Are too, yeah, puritanical yeah. sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. All right. So, so that was the latest round of Twitter discussions too. Was being yeah. too feminine. Um, yeah. ridiculous stuff that you have to think about when you don't have real problems. So. Real problem. Moving Speaking on. To problem, real I do want to bring up one more point from Bishop uh, <clears throat> Richard before we move on to talk about today is COVID's anniversary. But before that, I do want to bring up the point that he was talking about people in his pews across the world having the conspiracies and the problems that come from American Catholic online media. And I was really struck by that because that is part of you know our our message here right is to kind of combat some of that and i've been saying for a while too when i hear that ewtn is um going into Af is setting up more um infrastructure in africa and all of that 
we have to worry about the fact that the United States has a global influence. So we may think, oh, you know, Taylor Marshall has, you know, 50,000 followers from the U.S., but what about when that trickles down globally? And so that was really interesting. And And that was one of the things that when I was talking with Pedro, he was saying that these things don't originate in Portugal. They've never heard that, but he's like, and this was, I guess, about eight months ago, probably when we recorded that podcast, it was like in the middle of the summer. And he, um, he said that he, that they were, they were creeping in from the U S now into Portugal. I mean, Portugal has very high English fluency, mm-hmm. so it might've, it, I mean, that's part of it, but yeah, if you speak English, well, and, and then, um, Dawn Eden Goldstein talked about, she gave a lecture in India in Kerala. And she said that three church ladies came up to her after her talk to tell, to tell them, to tell her, to ask her about Michael Voris. And did she know that my, that the Pope was a heretic? Cause they had heard that from Michael Voris. I mean, it's. Um, well, in my Nigerian context, because um, I used to um, be involved with a Nigerian NGO, the same thing in Nigeria, they're getting it from Western media. And of course, even more so before, you know, um, needing to see like paper copies or needing to see, you know, like televised um, content. Now it's internet, which is completely accessible globally. And so I just wanted to highlight that because it has caused a mess in the U.S., but the U.S. leadership and all of us really must take up our part because it's causing global issues Um, like um, trepidation about taking. What was the article we shared today? Um, I think WPI shared it about uh, and, and the Philippines kind of hesitation to take the vaccines now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. U.S. conspiracies. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's because even not even not even U.S. conspiracies. This was um, an article I think, Mike, you tweeted yesterday. Yeah. Um, it was an interview and we can share the link to it. It was an interview in Crux online um, with Father Nicanor Austriaco. I'm probably mispronouncing his name, but he is a Dominican priest who is also a molecular biologist. And he's developing a COVID-19 vaccine that is not that doesn't utilize the HEK-293 cell line so that it has no moral qualms with it whatsoever. Um, But he raised the point that even like the privileged conversations we have in America where we are debating the ethics of the COVID-19 vaccines, the variety that are available in the United States now, that this is a very privileged conversation. He said, not only is American society hoarding the vaccine, they're making it intellectually, morally, and psychologically difficult for significant numbers of other Catholics around the world who are scrambling for the scraps of vaccines left over to actually take them. At the end of the day, these vaccines will end the pandemic. The pandemic is the trigger for enormous economic burdens, especially for the poorest of the poor. And so there's all these poor, global poor who are suffering, who do not even have access to the vaccine while we are kind of hand-wringing, asking a lot of questions, balancing moral goods. Like these are very nuanced theological conversations that might need to take place, but the public forum is probably not the best place for those conversations to happen, especially when they are being exported around the world and causing such problems during a global pandemic. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing if you have your nose in this kind of thinking, if you're, Mm -hmm. I mean, but that's like Catholics are not obligated to, you know, keep up with Catholic Twitter or to keep up with every Vatican edict that's out there. And and this is part of the reason why having a hierarchy is important because the idea is where do you turn when you need 
to know, can I have this vaccine direct or not? direct answer to this question, you which go, we have direct answers for. We have yeah. a direct answer from, you know, from the CDF. And then the USCCB came out with a statement, which, while totally valid, did maybe bring up these cross considerations a little bit more heavily. And then we've seen individual bishops who've taken it a step further. Mm-hmm. A couple of them, like the one in, in South Dakota, put out a statement that was erroneous, basically said, mm-hmm. you know, you can have one of these two vaccines, but you cannot have this one, which is not what the Vatican said. Um, and and people read this and they or they hear about cooperation with evil, but they don't understand that just getting in a car and going somewhere is cooperation with e- evil. I mean, almost everything you do, um, assuming that you buy a product from somebody who gives money to uh, somebody who's destroying the environment or, you know, some nation that's unjust. I mean, that's anytime you buy a product from China, it's remotely cooperating yeah. with some evil. Um, well, and even arguably to a higher degree than mm-hmm. the vaccines, because oh, yeah. when we also start to piece apart just how remote the cooperation with evil is in the vaccine. It is incredibly remote, more so than buying an iPhone or, mm-hmm. um, you know, as these reactionaries like to do, tweet out on their iPhones or their smartphones, yeah. which have a higher degree. Um, and one of the things that I, I mean, and this might even be my own conspiracy theory. But it seems to me that the anti-vaccine movement, and I'm talking about the mainstream one, the one that thinks that it causes autism or that it, vaccines are bad for you, like to like what their what their purpose is, I don't understand. But they want as few people to get vaccines as possible. They want to disrupt that the whole immunization process in, in American health. And I think that there's a group that have exploited the Catholic Church's pro-life stance mm-hmm. and they're they don't care about they don't like vaccines period so if this argument that it's tied to abortion can convince you not to get a vaccine then great we'll tell you whatever you need to hear is just so that you don't as few people get vaccinated as possible which mm-hmm. I, I mean I can't wrap my mind around you know, I mean, the, the typical person who's anti-vaccine probably got all their shots as a kid. Did they think, I, I mean, it's sort of they adopt these views based on the Internet after they're I, I older. Some of it is the culture war thing, though. Yeah. And because when you see the strong correlation, right, you see the correlation on the political spectrum. It's always a certain um, it's always those on the pretty far right. Right. I don't mean like alt right necessarily, but more right than right moderate. Right. It's always those groups, right? Um, well, anti-vaxxers started on the left, actually. Originally, it was part of that granola hippie health well, thing. But it was it was still kind of a hesitancy. Like correlated to that, though, was this kind of hesitancy, like to reject the culture, right? So those kids in those circles were typically homeschooled, and you know, rejecting like modern medicine, rejecting. It, it's like a, I don't. It's it's definitely began as far as I saw living it right because it's mm-hmm. it's relatively new in the last couple of decades. Um, and also, I was a young mom, so I, it was the same crowds that were emerging. It was very much yes, you're right. Sometimes not directly tied to the right, but very much these um, groups of people who wanted so strongly to be countercultural, yeah. as if that gave a meaning. 
Um, and they just, it just a distrust of the medical community, a distrust of establishment, a distrust of um, government. And then it kind of, you know, somehow like a- adapted into this kind of um, uh, coming into that political, because now it's highly political. You can't, you can't take the two apart at this point. The anti-vax movement, right? And the anti, especially in terms of COVID, when you add the pro-life issue, is now deeply tied into yeah. being correlated to, you know, even stop the steal kind of stuff. And um, it's the same folks. I think a lot of the public conversations around vaccines, like among Catholics, need to be a lot more savvy to the reality that there was a pre-existing anti-vaccination movement that was mm-hmm. kind of poised to take advantage of a crisis like this. And they were ready to kind of move with talking points. And so that some sincere pro-life concerns or sincere convictions that pro-life people have, like, I don't want to um, be benefiting from an abortion that occurred. I don't like that. Like, those are things that, those are objections that are sincere among some people that can be overcome with our tradition of moral theology and, and guidance from pastors. But there needs to be a very savvy, like, distinction made between like, we think that vaccines are great. Um, as Father Ostriaco said in his interview, the vaccine is a blessing from God. Like that is, we can say that, like we should be able to say that. Um, we need to be able to distinguish between that. And then um, those who think that really vac- they have a lot of suspicion or skepticism or hesitancy or just opposition to vaccination because of other concerns, which don't necessarily derive from moral beliefs, but more from ideas about health and and wellness and those sorts of things. And I think that's the abuse. That's one of the abuses that I, that one of the reasons why we, we started where Peter is, it was because, and this, a lot of this actually predates, I mean, both of you are, are moms. So I'm sure you heard a lot of these, a lot of these maybe traditionalist routines that, you know, you, you absolutely have to breastfeed exclusively for this amount of time you know that i was vaccine hesitant you know i planned a home birth with the baby but i'm saying like there are all these yeah like i've been all these pressures there's the you know but then they've also got like the um simca fisher calls it the the sola skirtura (laughs) the um (laughs) you know women should only wear skirts so um there's you know the raw milk movement gets tied into it somehow um, it's just a very crunchy granola, natural living thing. And yeah, but they get blurred. Yeah. All of this stuff kind of gets blurred over with, um, what, whether or not with, with the faith it's conflate and mm-hmm. e- even good things, even religious things get conflated with the faith. And I want to say, like, I want to say this very carefully because it can get mis- misconstrued. I love the rosary. Um, I try to pray the rosary. I've gone through stretches where i've done it daily now it's kind of like a decade here and there but we encourage the rosary pope francis has definitely encouraged every time pope francis comes out with we're going to pray the rosary for a month or we're going to have a special rosary day like we put out a rosary guide because praying the rosary is a great devotion but (laughs) taylor marshall wrote something to the effect recently on on twitter like if you don't pray the rosary daily then you're not a good catholic or or, or somehow yeah. conflated the rosary with being a good catholic and the crazy thing is the rosary didn't even exist until saint dominic or 
You know, the, I mean, it wasn't the first, uh, you know, at least the first 1200 years, years of, of Christendom. And on top of that, there are 20 something Catholic churches, if you include the Eastern churches. And a lot of them, some of them have adopted the rosary, but the rosary is strictly uh, or, you know, specifically rooted in the Western church. Like it's not necessary for salvation as beautiful as it is. It's not one of the seven sacraments. It's, you know, and, but then you, you go a step, you know, three steps down from that to say something like, uh, you know, if, if the woman works outside the, if the wife works out outside the home, it's a mortal sin. Or, um, you know, if you don't go to home school, if you don't homeschool, you're going to be held responsible if your children go to hell. Yeah. I mean, just sort of, well, I think so. Okay. So back, I think it's the same. I want to make two points that are kind of the same one backing up to kind of why those in the secular arena, um, really adopted this anti-vax. I had someone, um, a close person to me who, who did, who adopted very strongly, like went to courts and stuff like that to fight vaccines. And my thought with, with that person was kind of this realization that sometimes I think people need to feel like they're doing something good or they're a crusader or they're a hero and they want to attribute something to the world. Right. And I think often with the rejection of religion and within the walls of rejection of within the walls of uh, religion, the rejection of social justice causes, right. Mm -hmm. That you start to take up these kind of battles, which may not even be fully like in truth or necessary or to be kind of silly first world problems, right? You take, or even non-existent, like it's, this vaccine thing should not even be an issue. It's science, right? You take up these, these battles because you want to feel like a hero. You want to feel like you're doing something good. And if you're not re- ready to face like what we know would be a real service to the world would be things like, you know, um, fighting for the poor, helping, you know, the homeless, helping marginalized groups. Racism is a big issue right now. If those are too uncomfortable for you to touch, then what does feel okay is either maybe in a secular way, picking up a crusade or vaccines, or within religions, religious circles, picking up the idea that you should just pray seven rosaries a day. Because that doesn't challenge you in that way. It may feel uncomfortable, but comfortable in ways you're it feels uncomfortable in ways you're um, you're comfortable feeling uncomfortable. That was a lot. Sorry. But that is what I see most pervasively. I have a friend, again, stuck in this kind of trad ideology who prayed seven rosaries a day. Seven a day. Now, I'm like, you, you get props in a sense because that's intense. But at the same time, she's also not ready to face what, um, you know, like, for example, the Black Lives Matter, racism, any social justice issues, all of that, she's very important to. It's just her way of living the faith is just to pray these rosaries or to homeschool her kids. And people are very unwilling to go outside their comfort to find other ways to serve the world, to find other ways to really crusade for something that cost them. And so I think that has a lot to do with it. And, and you, know who, oh, Sorry. you know who makes people feel really uncomfortable? Is Me? Pope Francis? No, oh. no. <laughs> Pope Francis. No, I mean I don't know about you guys, but if Pope Francis didn't make you feel uncomfortable early on, then I, you, you know, you guys, <laughs> well, either you weren't we paying attention, we or or out. or you weren't very comfortable with Benedict. Well, we thought we had to figure out. We had JP two. We had John Paul II. We had 
very well-funded apologetics movement come out of that. We had very well-funded theology of the body programs come out of that. And we thought a lot of us Catholics who were trying to be practicing Catholics thought we had it figured out. And, mm-hmm. but, um, and I know we've dabbled into this in the website too, a lot of even what was presented to us from, um, or filtered to us from even John Paul II was filtered to, to speak on theology of the body topics unless these topics that are going to cost particularly like Westerners a lot, particularly white Americans a lot, particularly those in Western culture, because it challenges the heart of our issues, individualism, unbridled capitalism, um, prosperity gospel tidbits, even filtered. We may not say, oh, God just loves all you know the rich more. We're not seeing that as Catholics, but you see tidbits like a demonization of the poor in various ways. And that stems from Western prosperity gospel values. So when this Pope now has come and his message, although the other ones had the same message, very similar, his message is very much kind of head on some of these Western values. It makes us uncomfortable. We thought we had it figured out. And so, but that discomfort we know in the spiritual life is a good thing too. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because one of those, th- I, I used to listen um, to to Catholic Answers Radio on my way home from work, like before Francis was elected. And I remember they'd have like open line for non-Catholics to call in. and occasionally there would be a question i re- i mean i remember one in particular where a guy called in and he's like i listen to you guys all the time and all i ever hear you guys talking about is the church and the rules and it's like why don't you ever talk about jesus and i i don't really remember what the answer to the question was but i was sort of like you know i don't know if we and and i was very much of that sort of apologetics culturally catholic mindset and to me, I was thinking so much more about the, the following the right rules, or um, is that does that person believe in all this? Or I mean, I just instinctively, it was part of our upbringing. I remember, like Melinda and I were, you know, because like the number of kids <laughs> and how, like, if you have this many kids. This is what they think of you. Clearly, you know, I'm more Catholic. Come on, Mike. I know. <laughs> We're in the winds this one. You know what? I think, I think seven is sort know, of like... Almost, no. Seven is like mid-level qualifier. Okay. Oh, boy. It's, but I'm young. I am young. You are young. You you can get... I think I nine. Nine is the golden number. I think that once you have nine or more kids, <laughs> then you become Catholic supermom. I mean, seven or eight, it's sort of like you tried. Six, you know... Like okay, I'm in. I'm, You're in different circles than I grew up in. Different. I'm, I have four, so I'm sort of I'm I'm like trust but verify. Like okay, that's an acceptable number of kids, but, but there could be some issues there. <laughs> and how far apart are they spaced? And why is you know? But um, <laughs> no, but I mean, it's like all this judgmentalism, this um, worrying so much. I mean, you can kind of sense like. And I think some of that is the worrying about Pope Francis. Is he going to say this right? Oh, no, if he says this, that's going to make people think that. Or, um, you know, I, I, uh, Cardinal Tobin was recently named to to the um, Congregation for Bishops. And it's funny because there's also a, a Bishop Tobin. And depending on which wing of the church you're on, one is the good Tobin and one is the bad Tobin. Like, I've literally heard both of them <laughs> called good Tobin, Tobin and bad Tobin. <laughs> 
See, we can't talk about this stuff when the bishop is on. <laughs> but, but, but he I likes dialogue, so. But I, but I read, you know, I read an article that was like an analysis of his selection, and it kind of gave a history, and it didn't like say this guy is awful or this guy is a jerk, but it like threw out like all of these like clues, like. Mm, you know like if he uh, you know he did say this one time and oh he did like you know when this happened he didn't respond he responded like this and it's sort of like these like it's like you know what i've never met the man you know i've heard the good and the bad i i wish the best i have friends who think the world of him um but it's god's church and I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit flew down and plucked, uh, you know, this bishop for that job. I mean, if that was the case, I mean, how would Bishop Umbers have ever been? Imagine, <laughs> I'm kind of imagining like this big bird right now, like the Holy Spirit in the dirt and the like form of a dove, just like plucking these cardinals down. I know that has nothing to do with anything, but. You know, um, and people, but, but I mean, this is the thing. It's sort of like, okay, they're going to be. And like, I think I worked for the Bishop's Conference. Like, I know that most of them are not inspired <laughs> most of them are overwhelmed and they're in over their heads and they're trying their hardest and they probably aren't super duper at their job but somehow the church has stayed together for 2000 years right so it's sort of like yeah i mean i can understand if they do something you personally that like drive but it's sort of like judging them based on their beliefs and based on their doing this suspicions. or making that decision or mm-hmm. yeah suspicions making and it's sort of it's like you know what, if you really trust that this is the church that Christ founded and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, you aren't going to, you won't find yourself knee deep in, in fighting the church. Now, I I mean, I, I, or doubts, doubts, that's what all, that's what all the fighting is to me. If you look under the surface of the fighting and the resistance to Vatican II or to Pope Francis, it is doubt that's what it is and they're just not wanting to verbalize it as i'm having doubts about christ church and whether i can trust it um but i think what melinda was saying about how um it really indicates like on a deep level this kind of spiritual comfort and discomfort i think it's true that you know especially thinking of my own experience like i was comfortable with being uncomfortable in certain ways like there were certain ways that yep you should be uncomfortable like you should have all those children and yeah it's a life of discomfort but that's what god asks you to do so you should do it but there are these ways that pope francis comes along and challenges us and i remember like laudato si like the initial coverage it got was like oh my gosh he doesn't want us to have air conditioning and just like the most ridiculous little details of it because we like americans can't imagine being told to be uncomfortable in ways we were not expecting. And I think that that has happened really again and again through his papacy and actually keeps happening. Like this trip to Iraq that just happened last weekend, like it's during a pandemic. A lot of people, like a lot of us who really care and are fully on board with Pope Francis and his mission are like, he's going to Iraq in the middle of a pandemic. No one has had the vaccine there. I mean, he's had the vaccine, but it just seems like a very risky sort of trip. And he's challenging us again to like, look at what he's doing in choosing to take this trip. Look at his kind of discernment process. He talked about it on the flight home, how he prayed about it and kind of went with his gut, like his gut said, I need to go to Iraq, so I'm going to go. 
But that is really challenging to our kind of American notions of how we should operate in our faith. Like we should be comfortable and we should kind of shy away from discomfort and we should look suspiciously on those who make us uncomfortable from time to time. When really the lesson I take from the Francis pontificate so far is you should be uncomfortable. That is when you have the opportunity to grow and to learn. <laughs> um, and I mean, we, we weren't planning on talking about the lessons we learned from Pope Francis in the past eight years, but that that is one that just keeps recurring for me. And I don't know if you guys have any similar kind of thoughts or experiences like what you've learned and even yeah. recently. Yeah. Well, and we'll post the link, but um, reading the article, who um, the most recent one that we wrote about the um, that we published about the uh, about the Iraq trip was from, so from Mark, Mark Shamoon. Mark. Yeah, he's wrote he's written two reflections for us. He's a Chaldean Catholic. Um, I believe he lives in Canada, but yeah, he's original, he's of Iraqi descent. And so he um, wrote a reflection both before the trip and after that just got posted today, and we can. Share and it those sounds, yeah. yeah, the link was great. The article was great. Um, it summed up a kind of what I was feeling too, uh, you know, about the trip. And it mentioned, um, I believe it mentioned uh, the COVID precautions and stuff. And for me, it did make me uncomfortable too, because I was like, I hope he's safe. I hope the people are safe. Um, but it also proved this point that he has been pretty consistent about acknowledging the common good and our obligations to mm-hmm. um, ensure that through different COVID precautions, right? But the idea is that sometimes we get comfortable in having everything figured out and what it looks like. So in mm-hmm. this particular case, there were numerous reasons that he lays out, that Mark lays out really well in the article, why the trip was so important. So he wasn't boxed in by that his own rule. Now, again, I even feel uncomfortable saying this because I think we absolutely have to take the COVID precautions. But mm-hmm. there are always like when you're working on different truths and different issues, like there seems to be like very little absolutes and absolutes are comforting. And we want to think, well, nobody should go at any point. But here's a man who said, very um, emphasizing his decision to go saying, I decided I understood the risk. I understood what was needed. And in prayer, I made this decision. And so the ability to kind of, I don't think Catholics, I think sometimes we feel comforted by rules. And we don't always like to like think about, you know, our conscience and our discernment being necessary. And so for me, it was, again, yes, definitely tied into this idea of allowing yourself to be uncomfortable and allowing yourself to not be stuck into the comforts of absolute rules and understanding that we, it's not, it it is about us needing to discern things with, with our conscience. And if the Holy Father discerned that, then I respect his discernment. That's kind of, yeah. There, there was another uh, another piece that was a little similar to that um, in that it made me uncomfortable that we published. Um, it was by Carlos Colorado. I'll see if I can find it. It was it was actually fairly early in the pandemic, and um, it was about. I'm trying to find which um, which country it was in Central America, but there was a situation where they were under serious lockdown. Um, Romero's rebels is what the the article with the the essay was called i'm looking at my other screen that's why i'm looking away um but it was um but yeah it was it was so locked down that like the people who were homeless or the people who who didn't have anywhere anywhere to live they couldn't get any food um and so there was a group that you know they put on their masks they they 
it was in El Salvador. Um, there was a group that decided, you know, we're going to go downtown and we're going to feed the poor, even though there were military police everywhere. We're going to kind of try to covertly hand out this food. And there are photographs of them um, going through uh, going through uh, the downtown um, c- city in El Salvador and uh, and handing out these food to these poor people, even though, yeah, I mean there's sometimes you have to, you have to make that decision, but these are like legitimate reasons. Like, Mm -hmm. and you take the precautions you can while you were there. Like we saw Pope Francis in a mask more, even though, you know, he's theoretically immunized from vaccinated. Uh, Yeah. He's vaccinated. But, um, I also want to, I guess, before we, we conclude, because we want to talk, just share a little bit about Pope Francis. And I, I talked to Mark actually, um, when he submitted his like looking forward to the trip piece, mm-hmm. I talked to him be- after I posted it and I said, maybe you'd be interested in writing a follow-up after the trip. But mm-hmm. um, the day after the trip, I-, I talked to him and I said, no pressure if you don't want to write a follow-up, but I-, I just wanted to share my thoughts with him and to see just to bounce the idea off him from what, what my reaction was to the trip. And one of the things you notice, and I posted links to the two, the two big homilies he gave on Saturday and Sunday. And it was interesting because these, you know, this is a people that's been through hell and back. Um, Their churches have been destroyed. They're driven from their homes. They've lost family and community members, either been dispersed as refugees around the world or have been killed. Um, And let's be clear. This is not just from ISIS, right? This is going like when the Iraqis, yeah, I mean, going back to 2003, but ISIS right. is really... The American invasion yeah. that led to instability, that led to ISIS, that led to exactly. the destruction. Yeah. Um, but Pope Francis's message, and it was sort of like Fratelli Tutti, um, was, it wasn't like, even though Pope Francis is a lot about, he says a lot about dreams, but he doesn't gloss things over. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like, here's where we are. Here is where you are. Here's where everyone else is. This is what you can do to, to make things better, to bring the world closer to Christ, to build fraternity, to build community, to bring peace, but it's up to you. And, and obviously it's a very unstable situation in Iraq right now. And one of the things that I mean, yes, he expressed his sympathy and his empathy and his um, admiration for the for the people and their strength. But he didn't. the The only promise that he made, you know, he didn't promise that they were going to build again and be stronger than ever. Like because he can't make that promise. He's the minority Christian country. It's unstable. The people are poor. Is something terrible could happen and and they could lose it all but the only the promise that they have is the promise of the cross which that's the promise it, for all it, christians exactly that's what he could promise him, them that's what mm-hmm. he i mean that's really all that we're guaranteed that's our only promise and i think bringing it back to that that they are basically living the cross um and that that is that is that's their triumph Ultimately, that's what they can hold on to. And yeah, hopefully there will be peace and hopefully there will be good relations and hopefully the church 
in Iraq can grow again, bigger and stronger and better than ever. But even if those goals on a, on a worldly tangible basis don't happen, they, they still triumph through the cross. Well, and I know we need to wrap it up, but I wanted to just add this last um, note on Iraq. Um, As I was watching for me, I don't want to center this too much on the American perspective because this is a moment for Iraq Iraq and the history and the people. Um, But for me, I was watching some of these pictures of um, the devastation, right. And the bombings and the, and the, um, the rubble that is still there from that. Right. But then there was the vibrancy of the people that was so evident as well. And I don't want to idealize, again, the suffering these people have endured, but it also was like healing balm in a sense for me, um, seeing that such devastation, these these people still were, it was like the life that springs forth. That's that's kind of what I saw. Like, mm-hmm. And for me also, sometimes I think that the American church focuses on very petty things, right? Very first world to use that thing again, first world, even non-existent problems, but then I see, and I remember the church is universal and it gave me hope seeing the vibrancy of the people, seeing the graciousness of the people, seeing the faith of the people. It gave me hope in the universality of the church. Um, and so even again, all the way from across, you know, the oceans, um, <laughs> but um, it was just, it was, it was so healing and so, and so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, it really seemed to be a big show of solidarity. And I know that Mark wrote about that in his piece after the visit was just the sense of solidarity from having the Pope kind of there. And he was expressing his unity with the Iraqi people. And I know that he, um, that Pope Francis in his preaching, you know, he did turn towards the Beatitudes as a, as a route for peacemaking. And um, he, he reflected on like, the most pivotal and the most impactful moment that happened for him on the trip was listening to a mother in Karakosh, which was a Christian village that was just heavily devastated by ISIS. And her son had been killed by ISIS. And um, she gave a moving reflection on forgiveness. Um, And he said that was the most impactful like the most moving aspect of the trip for him, because this this is what Pope Francis said, a mother who says, I forgive, I ask forgiveness for them. It reminded him of being in Colombia, where he also saw so many people, women and mothers um, who had experienced the murder of their children and husbands who also forgave. And he said, we have lost that word. We know how to insult very well. We know how to condemn me first, but to forgive, to forgive one's enemies, that is pure gospel. He said, that's what struck me the most. And I think he just always manages to return us straight to the heart of the gospel message, which is forgiveness, even of those who persecute you. Like that is what Christ asks of us. And he points us to the witness of those in Iraq who have have done that and who continue to do that and he encourages and expresses solidarity with them and it is really just so challenging for us who do have our western american eyes um on these things but it i think it it is one of the most powerful some of the most powerful images i think we've seen of his papacy um have come from this trip for me personally i don't know if you guys have any oh yeah i mean well this and and the covid Irby at Orby. And, yeah, that's I mean, pretty been a, en- emblematic. Been, I mean, there have been some significant moments um, visually, but, it, you know, it's funny because one of the things that I, I I did want, I did finally write about the trip to Iraq. Like, I wanted to, 
and I, I think I'll write maybe a reflection a little bit down the road, but I was, I was going back and forth with this reactionary priest who thinks that Francis is a heretic or, you know, writing a, a response to what he was doing. And I, and then in the back of my head, I'm like, why is he focused on this when the Pope is making this pilgrim, this historic pilgrimage to Iraq right now? It's like, why can't you, if you, if you want to be a Catholic, if that's so important to you and you want to follow what's going on in the church, why are you following this nonsense? Why aren't you following the Holy Father and, and what he's doing in the world and his message instead of trying to pick apart every single little thing? So um, I don't know. I, maybe, I, I need to write a retrospective for, for, for Saturday on the last eight years because I've got, got a lot of thoughts. Retrospective. Retrospective. Be a lengthy retrospective <laughs> on eight years. Yeah. Yeah. So um, well, I think, you know, it's funny because Pope Francis, he is encouraged, he encourages everyone and especially priests to be in contact with the people and to not let themselves get wrapped up in like just this online, like kind of a reactionary posture and to focus on the real people in front of you. And I don't know if during the pandemic, it's been easy for some to get more out of touch. Um, it's just easier to hold things at arm's length and not allow ourselves to be challenged. But it really is. I mean, that's the challenge of Francis is stay, <laughs> stay with the people and ministering to them and their needs. Um, so let's see how Mike's retrospective goes. If it gets <laughs> We're written. all looking forward to it. No, no pressure. It might be now, the like, 10 year, you know. We'll ten years. Yeah. We'll see in yeah. two years. When he gets to his yeah. 20th anniversary, that'll be something. He'll be 96 years old, though. Oh, won't, probably won't be able to travel as much. At, around <laughs> right now is we're crossing the threshold where the Francis papacy is longer than the It Benedict is longer now. Benedict yeah. didn't make it to a so, full. Yeah. yeah. So get that retrospective written, Mike. <laughs> All right. Well, that's all we have for this week. We'll see you all next week. Same time, same place. Bye. Bye.